Amen. Well, fitting songs in light of the message this morning. Um, no accident in those things. Um, sometimes there is, but uh, even that we, we understand is divine providence. Um, but thinking of ancient words, uh, knowing that we're thinking of sacred scripture and thinking of our passage, I want you to open up to 2 Timothy chapter 3 as we look to build on what we talked about couple weeks ago on why we do what we do as a church, looking at Ephesians and the charge that we have as um, pastors and elders to equip and train you for the work of the ministry. But what do we equip and train you with? And then in a few weeks, uh, I'm going to come back and even probably talk and go a little bit even deeper into some of the practical means of putting on and putting off from Colossians. But all this kind of works together into our understanding of, especially, why are we giving the next 45 minutes? Reuben absolutely took 59. I gave him a hard time. I was like, but that might tell you something about the church because you came back. I was like, it's 59. That's okay. He'll make me feel like a breath of fresh air. No. Uh, I just told him he's just that good that you guys didn't even notice. Um, but why do you sit for perhaps longer than some churches to hear the word of God. And it's this reason here because of the nature and the word's uh, ability to do these very things, to impact us um, in the way that we live and tell us what the Lord wants us to know. So let's just read together before we look together and pray. Second Timothy chapter 3, we'll start in verse 14 and go through verse 17. And then we'll kind of focus on 16 and 17 through the rest of our time. Verse 14, Paul continues his writing to Timothy, but you continue in the things you learned and became convinced of, knowing from whom you learned them and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. Father, we do thank you this morning for all the good things that you have given, for all the times that you have shown to be what you have promised in your word, that you are faithful and true, that we can learn through the revelation of your word about who you are and the things that you have done, uh, that we can see the work of your son and the salvation of which he accomplished on the cross for us, that we might know you and have a relationship with you and have not just a temporal life, but life eternal, life abundant. And so we rejoice this morning that we can Take it a moment to take a moment away from our lives and the things that distract us and to be like Mary and to focus on the one thing. And Lord, help us to come away as better worshipers this morning and understanding what your word and revelation is, what it is to us, what it is to be to the church and the way we should engage with it day in and day out. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen. 
one of my favorite American Proverbs, and I think, yes, I think we have American Proverbs. They may not be yet in stone. Uh, and as ancient, as we were saying earlier, as, as some other things, like our, uh, our own book of, the Pro- uh, book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. But we have sayings. One of my favorite American sayings is that you should not bring a knife to a gunfight. I like it. It's kind of funny. It sounds very, and there's, I looked it up a little bit, mostly from a movie, but maybe originated in Texas, which sounds about right. But all it simply means is don't be ill-equipped for the task at hand. You, you brought the wrong tool. If someone has a gun and you have a knife, sorry, it's not going to work out well for you. You're ill-equipped for the task at hand. Insert depressing Husker joke. Or ill-equipped for the task at hand. But so often, uh, whether it's the church as a whole, the preacher, or you as individual Christians, we bring our problems, our questions about life and theology, and we, and I'm as guilty as anyone, start to take things, uh, tools that God has given that were never meant for the task at hand. And so As we look at maybe our families, as we look at, say, in that case, parenting, if we look at our work, if we look at the church in particular and our Christian lives, and we start to go, let me think. And I'm, this is, this is a classic. This is where I go in my head. What's the best way to do X? I love that question. I like to think about that question, but it's really not the right place. It's not the right source to go to to get the biblical answer. What does God think? What does God's word say? What does the scripture say? We bring human wisdom about the meaning of life. What's going to make me happy? And we consult the wrong sources and thereby we get the wrong answers. It's folly. I love how I've mentioned this before, and I'm going to build on this in a few weeks with Colossians, but how in Colossians 3, Paul talks about the appearance of wisdom. We examine the questions of life forwards and backwards, and we read books, and we read another book and another book and get a different kind of take on things, but yet we forget to look to the scriptures. It's folly, and it's perhaps ugliest when it comes to spiritual things and it comes to the church. What is the best way to do church? And we ask the question almost as if God didn't say anything on the subject. And then you look to the scriptures and you go, actually, you have these books in the Bible, particularly the pastoral epistles, where there's a lot said and first and second Timothy and Titus for pastoral ministry and for the way that we should do the church. And even the book of Ephesians, which we looked last week. Man, how can I grow as a Christian? And you go, man, there's a book for that. The Lord has not left us without the information that we need to grow. The power is in his word and we need to use the right tool. And God has provided the tool necessary to properly equip us for life and godliness. And if you are to be effective for Christ... You're going to have to use that tool. You might argue, I don't like reading. Is this the read your Bible more sermon? Yes. (laughs) Listen to your Bible more. Memorize your Bible more sermon. Why? It's because of its very nature. Because what we are looking at this morning in this passage in 
just to warn you, we will be here and everywhere in your Bible. And so if you don't know your Bible well, I'm not guaranteeing you'll know it by the end of it. Um, it will probably help if you have Bible tabs. You just flip there really quick. Um, but we're just going to, I didn't put much on the screen with verses. I thought this would be appropriate in this kind of message as we look to the Word of God that you turn and you go there. And if you don't have a Bible in front of you, there's one in the back. Or you can grab your, your iPhone as well and, and kind of use the Bible app and, and move forward with that. But I think it's going to be helpful to bounce around. And we are, and I can tell you this, going to only scratch the surface of what the Scripture says about itself. But it's all going to be built on this foundation of understanding that all of Scripture is God-breathed. Its nature is divine. And its purpose is for our sanctification. And so the Word of God, as seen here in 2 Timothy, is a means to communicate not only the work of God in salvation, which is clear. The sacred writings, even the Old Testament, pointed to Yahweh. And he is looking to Timothy and saying, you learned these things and you became wise unto salvation through faith. It's not just that work of God, but it's also meant to equip the believer for the works of God in sanctification. And we need to keep those things in the right order. In fact, I, this is about the third iteration of the way I worded this. Because I had something where, you know, I think this would be okay. I think you guys understood what I, if I put that. The word of God is, um, is the, it accomplishes the work of God in salvation. I thought, well, I don't want you to be confused, right? Salvation comes through Christ in Christ's throne through faith. Even here, as he talks about wise and a salvation through faith. But it is, as we'll see, the means. The Spirit convicts the heart, right? That one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin, But he does that through God's special, not just even general revelation of the world, but his special revelation where you understand from his word what and who God is, who man is, and what we need to and how we need to respond to him. So we're going to see that here, 2 Timothy, and then again look at what this whole of the scriptures have to say. Now, for those who are less familiar with 2 Timothy, and we have not been in this book, which is a little rare for us. And normally we're going book by book and we're going to get into Revelation in a few weeks. But if you flip back to the beginning of 2 Timothy, and we just do kind of a basic survey and understanding, maybe this is helpful. We're looking to, uh, how do you study your Bible, Josh? Well, maybe this is a good example for how you do it. But oftentimes the most basic questions, the who, what, where, when, and why's, are not hard to find. Sometimes it's a little hard to find. You know, who wrote it? the book of Hebrews. And you go, well, it doesn't tell us, but Paul usually is, is kind to tell us. And verse one of chapter one, and where it says, who is the author? It's Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. Who's it written to? Boom. This is a great easy book. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father and Christ Jesus are Lord. And you kind of have to get the flavor of the way I like of author and audience. And then I, I like to look at the occasion. I like to ask that question, why this and not something else? What prompted Paul to say, I need to write a letter to Timothy? And so you sometimes have to extrapolate from that. But if you looked at the whole book, I think you'd come up with a good answer to say, it's in part to do with Paul's circumstances and Timothy's circumstances. And Paul's circumstances, he's in prison. And he knows his son in the faith, his disciple, his friend who is shepherding the church at Ephesus needs to be encouraged. Why? Because he seemingly 
is not only being challenged in 1 Timothy, but is kind of timid relative to Paul. And so he wants to remind Timothy, strengthen Timothy, and encourage him that even if your life is going to end like mine, which is currently in prison and soon to be in martyrdom, then that's okay. The Lord is still good. And so with that in mind, he's reminding Timothy of his calling and the power of God to work in him. So purpose, why? For this reason, he tells you again in verse six, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. This isn't something uh, superstitious or miraculous. It is that he simply is saying, this is the language of affirmation. That I affirmed you as the pastor of this church. I saw the gift of teaching, this gift that you have had, and I am affirming it and I am reaffirming it and I am encouraging you. You may feel inadequate for the job. And of course, apart from Christ, we all are. But he's encouraging to say, I saw these things in you. Be encouraged, be strengthened. Verse seven, because God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but a power and love and self-discipline. He goes on to talk about this whole idea of not being ashamed. Well, why would he need to tell you? Why does Timothy need to hear that? Because he's not the most popular guy in town. And if your teacher is in prison and you want to be like him when you grow up, guess where you might end up? And he's preparing him. And he's saying, don't be ashamed of the message. Don't be ashamed of the chains that currently bind him. And so you see the strength of God. And really throughout 2 Timothy, the strength of God to endure hardship and accomplish one's ministry. Not just Timothy, right? The Holy Spirit seems, see, saw fit to inspire this letter and give it to the whole church passed down and trusted to us. Yes, with some specific application, maybe more towards uh, pastors, but I think by implication to all believers, because I think everyone here needs to be strengthened, needs to be encouraged, and all these truths apply just as much to Timothy in that sense of who God is and the power of his word as apply to each one of us. I think we all need to be encouraged to endure, and that's exactly what he is encouraging Timothy to do throughout this book of Second Timothy. And so back to chapter 3, verse 1, just to give you a little bit of context. He sets the expectations of Timothy. Know that this, know this, that in the last days, and that's a phrase where we tend to think of end times, last days, but it is like we looked at Matthew in the Olivet Discourse. It is simply, we are in them. Paul was in them. These are what the Old Testament calls, uh, this is the church age, these are the last days. So it's not to say it's going to be five more days before the Lord comes or 500 years before the Lord comes. It's just a phrase of saying that this period, difficult days will come. Why? For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, without gentleness, without love for good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, but having denied its power. Keep away from such men as these. I know I read that quick, but that seems to be negative, right? You need to be strengthened. You need to be encouraged. You need to be um, avoiding them. But then if you just drop real quick to verse 10, 
saying, you're different than these men. Why? Because Timothy followed, it says, my teaching, my conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and suffering, such as happened to be at Antioch and at Iconium and at Lystra. And he's just reminding him, hey, you know this history. What persecutions I endured out of all of them, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Expectations. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But in contrast, Timothy, you continue in the things you learn, have become convinced, have become convicted of, knowing from whom you learn them, that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to make you wise unto salvation, which is all of Scripture. Uh, salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And then verse 16, all Scripture is God-breathed. And so I want to look at, in this context, the work of the Word, the nature of the Word. Now, with that, I said I don't want you to think in opposition of the work of Christ or the work of the Spirit. It's simply to say there's a means upon which the church age in particular, which God has given His Word, which is the way He has communicated to us, and by which we go and communicate His Word, His Gospel, upon which people's lives are changed. Not only for eternity, but even in this life, their choices in the way that they live. And to do that, the first thing we need to look at is this little phrase, all scripture is God breathed in verse 16. And look at the word of God and look at its nature. And its nature is very first there from this passage is that it is God breathed. And then there's some implications. If this is from God and God is all knowing and perfect, and omniscient, then, of course, it's going to have massive implications for this being different than words coming from any human, any wise person, because it's from the very mouth of God. So it is, it is God breathes. Flip over to Second Peter chapter 1, 21, and just to look at what do we mean by that, it is inspired by God. In Second Peter chapter 1, Verse 21, what we learn, verse 20, we'll start. What we learn in this, though, is that it's not simply as if it is inspired and dictated. That is to say, you look at the Old Testament, you look at the New Testament, that there is not places where you could say in English, we put quotation marks, God says this, thus says the Lord, and it's very specific. But in general, no prophecy is ever going to come from one's own interpretation But there's this way in which the Spirit is moving them, is carrying them along to communicate the words of God. And that includes through their own hand, through their own personality, through their own history, which God is moving. And so he says this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes by one's own interpretation. For no prophecy ever was made by the will of man, but men being moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. There's a context here, Second Peter, that's even more important of which he's going to go into uh, false teachers in chapter 2, and he's going to keep giving the sureness of the word, that it is more sure, as uh, earlier Joel mentioned, than even the most radical experience, which he gives before this, of seeing the Christ, incar- Christ incarnate and transfigured on the mount. 
And so it is by its nature, God breathed, being moved along by the Spirit as he gave to these men. Just a couple pages before in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 22. Because it is God-breathed, it is something that endures forever. It is not less powerful today than 2,000 years ago. And there is a way in which we often look at history with a bit of smugness. And you look back and you'd say, oh, I never would have done those things. Or we try to think, well, this is antiquated. But no, the word of God endures forever. It is timeless. In fact, he says there in 1 Peter 1, 20, uh, chapter 1, verse 22, since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a a love of the brothers without hypocrisy, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. And then he quotes Isaiah. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And he says this word, the one that endures forever from the Lord himself, that is incorruptible, that's the word which was proclaimed to you as good news. This is from God himself. It is God breathed. And by implication of both those as well, it is inerrant. And that is to say, it is infallible. It is, it is not going to be communicating with error. It's not as if someone slipped their finger and made something wrong. At least we understand this in the original transcripts of the scriptures. It has everything you need for life and godliness. I'll just read this one in Psalm 19, uh, verses 7 through 11. It says, The law of Yahweh is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The law of the Lord is perfect. There is no error. There is no mistake. There's no corrections coming. There's no second edition that you can expect where he's going to have to, because of something that has happened, he's going to have to do an update. It's, no, it's, it's not like that. Luke 16, 17 says, It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Like the way it's put in John ten thirty five, uh, John kind of puts it parenthetically, the scriptures cannot be broken. His word is true. It is without error. But not only is it without error, it is Effective. It does exactly what it intends to do. The word of God is effective. And I don't have this up there, but within the same frame, it is sufficient. That is, you don't need all these other things. It's, it's sufficient for the task at hand. Isaiah 55. You can turn back there. Isaiah 55, verse 10. Isaiah 55, well known, but comments on the very nature of 
the word of God. So Isaiah 55, verse 10 through 11. And he uses this in a way that Isaiah gives a metaphor and says, the word of God is like this. What, it's, what is it like? Verse 10, it is, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bear and sprout and giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what it pleases me and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. When the word of God goes forth, it is true. It will happen. It will make its impact. Whether it's going to, someone hears it, harden them, or whether it is going to soften them, it will have its effect. It is and will never return void. Second Peter 1, 3 just says, a verse there, we don't have to go there, but the scriptures, the Lord has equipped you and me with everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness. What are the implications of this? I think a huge implication from this is given, flipping back to 2 Timothy, in the very next chapter, in the very next verses. And so you go, why do we do what we do? And we talked last week, and again, I want to kind of flesh this out. Why do we preach the word? Why do the discipleship groups study the word? It seems like a lot of Bible. Are you studying Romans before you have another sermon? Why? Because you want to hear from God, and you want to get as much as you can, and you're never going to be satisfied but one huge implication of this is that the Bible is our textbook, if you want to think of it that way. It is the playbook. It is the thing that we go back to to build our lives upon. And so therefore, you preach it. The pastor preaches it. The believer studies it, reads it. Look at just even chapter 4. An implication, really, of verses 16 and 17, the nature that all Scripture is God-breathed. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the living and the dead, by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and teaching. Of course, he doesn't leave you with, is that always going to be effective? That's not the point. Be faithful in its teaching. But understand the time is coming when people will turn their ears away, but you preach to those who will listen. I love verse 5. Sober in all things. Understand the reality of life and ministry. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. See how that, you just think of chapter 1. Well, why does he write this? Well, because that's what he wants for Timothy it's that subtle of be encouraged. Then he brings a little reality back to and say, you got to do it even if it's difficult. Endure it. Do the work. Fulfill your ministry. A huge part of this then becomes, if that is the textbook, is that what we present? That's what we study together. Then we're highlighting the work of the word. We're highlighting this idea that it's not a man, it's not my work, it's not the pastor's work, it's not the elder's work, it is 
God's work through his word. We're coming up a little bit. You think churches typically have September, you know, post-Labor Day, um, kind of launching new ministries, new things. Well, you know, we live in this culture. We live in this world. And so we're obviously going to look, you know, our calendars flow in a similar way to, to everyone else. But, I, but people will often ask me, you know, what are you going to do next? And, you know, for me, it's, okay, we're going to do uh, verse by verse Revelation next. But, but I'll get the question very often of, well, where, where are you going to be in five years? Maybe it'll be a question about facilities, and obviously we're, we're running a school. Um, but typically, most people have experienced somewhere at another church this idea of vision, right? And vision casting. And usually, somewhere around late August and early September, it's a very classic, at least within evangelical churches, not so much mainlines. But, you know, there's a vision Sunday, right? What's the vision for the church? This is the vision of the church. It's not mine, though, right? You don't want me to go back, rack my brain, and come up with what are we all going to do this year together. No. We're going to preach the word in season and out of season. That's what drives the ship. Now, again, I've said before, what that means, though, is as we study the word, we're going to find out all kinds of issues, all kinds of shortfallings. When we get to uh, the works of God in the word, when we get to kind of moving from content, to, con- uh, from content to, to conduct here in a moment, there's all kinds of things in which James calls it a mirror. Um, Hebrews calls it a sword, two-edged sword. So, Don't get me wrong. As you preach the word, there's all kinds of issues that are going to start popping up, but we're going to be focused on those issues in our own lives, in our lives of the church, and the things are, are we, are we loving people well? And if we're not, guess what? You look in the mirror and you go, hey, I'm not a very loving person. Well, you're going to start working on that. That becomes the thing that we are about, right? It's becoming more Christ-like. And unless you actually get to that point, which you won't before the end of your life, then there's nothing to move on to. We continue to preach the word. But practically speaking, for each one of us, then, of course, you go, this is, you should become familiar with God's story, God's instruction, God's people, which means there's different levels, but you can't get much further than reading the word. You could say reading the word. You could say listening to the word. You could say meditating on the word. Um, but most of us, you're going to have to have a general understanding. And so you read. And then as you become more familiar, you go deeper and you study because these are God's words. You want to know what God has to say. In fact, uh, the way it's phrased in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, which I think is really, really helpful, especially if, if someone's looking and they're struggling with the Old Testament. I know you guys have all been there. January 1st comes along, you do a new Bible reading plan, you're struggling with the Old Testament. It doesn't seem very practical. What does all the sacrifices and all those things have to do? And so I find it helpful. In fact, we'll read an extended portion here in 1 Corinthians 10. Because this whole context is one of, it's very helpful for, for our sanctification. And he actually looks back at the Old Testament and says, there's a purpose in this, and it is for you. These examples are for you and I. And so therefore, I would encourage you, don't just read the New Testament, read the Old Testament. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. He said, we'll look at a little bit of an extended portion here. He says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. All ate the, drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. That is, we understand and we think of the stories of the Old Testament. You think of Sunday school, right? 
And you go back to it and you go, yeah, I know these stories. They're in the Old Testament. He's saying, these, these have a purpose, not just for then, but for now. Nevertheless, he says, with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were struck down in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. These are to be vivid life examples. This is learned from history so you don't repeat it. You don't have to go around and make the mistakes of Solomon. Rather, learn from him. Do not be, verse 7, idolaters, that some of them were, as it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play, nor less act in sexual morality. So he's going, look, you see the, you see the idolatry? There's some pretty grand examples of that in the Old Testament. He's saying, don't act in a sexual immoral way as some of them did. In fact, consequences, right? 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And so you might have got away, although I think anything can become, that is an idol, uh, an idol in the sense of that it's not just shiny golden objects or wooden things, right? Anything you love more than the Lord becomes something that you can idol- be idolatrous towards. But... If that didn't hit you, I think verse 10, grumbling, nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have arrived. Again, it's that same phrase that Paul uses these last days, which simply means from the time of Christ's ascension to his second coming, which is you and me. They happened that we might learn from them. So read, meditate, study the word, go deep, ask the questions, the who, what, where, when, the whys, to have a greater understanding of that. It's not to say this is formulaic. Um, You can study with the wrong motives, just like anything else. You can serve others with the wrong motives. Um, But generally speaking, the harder you study, the harder you work, the greater those gains, the greater it is. You're going to be able to be of more use, equipped for more good works when you have the scriptures on your mind being effective and being encouraged. And the main reason, I think, really, as you think about it, is the basic reason, which is we are very, very, very forgetful. And if I, Timothy is forgetful, I think most of us are going to be forgetful as well. We need to be reminded, which is what we do Sunday morning. That's what we do at discipleship groups. We keep reminding each other. A lot of what goes on in, I think, any biblical church is reminding you things that you, have, that you know, right? Not necessarily teaching you new things, although hopefully we're all learning some new things. A lot of it, and I can tell you from my own life, a lot of it's just going, ugh, reminding myself, oh yeah, I need to keep working. I need to keep striving in this particular area. Why? Because it is the very word of God. And because of its nature, it has massive implications for what we do and how we prioritize it in our life. And again, when we look to solve problems, we look to gain answers. You look to what God has to say first and foremost. And I think too often we spend all the time trying to solve the problem ourselves rather than going first to the word. And I think when you do, the Lord blesses and the Lord honors that All scripture is God-breathed. And so it's by its very nature, but also the second aspect of it 
is that it is profitable for teaching, that it is effective. And we'll call this, this idea of, of the works of God. Now, the, the first one here, thinking of backing up to verses 14 and 15, by its nature, it is what communicates the gospel truths of what Christ has done for his people, that he took his people's sins and he bore them on the cross, that he died, that he rose again, that he defeated sin. And so the works of God primarily start with an understanding of your salvation. And this is important. You don't want to get these things mixed up as we talk about these two issues of your salvation and your sanctification. Because you are striving in one of those areas, yes, alongside the Lord and and growing in Christ-likeness, but it is not something that earns you favor. You cannot earn your salvation. So it's important to keep this separate. And I think it's kind of a cycle where you're reminded of all that Christ has done. And so, yes, there are times where you need to be reminded that you need to rest in Christ because you did nothing to earn your salvation and you can't do anything to lose your salvation. And at other times, you need to be kind of kicked in the tail and go, you know what? Look at all that Christ has done for me, and I am living a life that dishonors him, and I need to look at those areas. The word shows you what it is to be saved. This idea of it's not enough. We're seeing it in Romans over and over again. It's not enough to simply have the natural revelation, the natural law. That doesn't lead to salvation. You need special revelation. Mark 4, 14 through 20 talks about how the fact that we do not live by bread alone. Jesus repeats that phrase over and over and over and over and over again. Multiple places, including James chapter 1, verse 18, talk about the fact that they use this phrase that we are brought forth by the word of God. They're not saying that there's a magical phrase that saves you. It's simply to say the, the way in which you learn about Christ is through his revelation, which is his word. And so it's a reminder of its work, which is chiefly and primarily, if you don't have this, then you've not entered into the door. You've not Pasco, you do not collect 200, and you can't work on sanctification if you are yourself not converted. And so it becomes this kind of language of, yes, expository preaching, but when it comes to evangelism, are you using the word? So I like that idea of expository evangelism. What kind of evidence do we have to say, use the word in evangelism? Well, I think there's a couple of really strong cases, and we'll look at two, but Luke chapter 8 Luke chapter 8 just simply gives, uh, we could go to Matthew's account as well, but uh, Luke chapter 8 with the parable of the soils. And he looks at different kinds of soils, and it's, it's condensed here a little bit in, in Luke. But it's so helpful when you start to understand your role as a sower of seeds, that is the word of God. So verse 4 of Luke chapter 8 says, Now when a large crowd came together and those from the various cities were journeying with him, he spoke by way of a parable. So this is just a short story with the truth. The sower went out to sow a seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the side of the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. And the other seed fell on rock. And as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Another seed fell among the thorns. And when the thorns grew up with it, they choked it out. 
And other seeds fell into good soil. Growing up, it produced a crop 100 times as great. And he said these things. And as he said these things, he would call out, He who has ears, let him hear. Well, the disciples are going, Well, tell me more. And they began questioning verse 9 him as to what this parable meant. And he said, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest of it is parables. That, so the seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. And then verse 11 is so helpful, right? Because you don't have to guess what it is. He gives you the purpose, and he says, Now the parable is this, that the seed is the word of God. And those beside the road and those who have heard, and the devil comes, takes away the word from their hearts so that they will not believe and be saved. And he goes on and he goes through all the soils. But it is to say, what do you scatter? What do you evangelize with? It's not going to work to simply tell someone, I have a better way of living. You're going to have to tell them, I have the truth, right? I have the gospel. And you have a need, whether you recognize it or not, to be saved. Once you understand that, I think Romans 10 makes a lot more sense. Because Paul plays that out in Romans 10. How is this going to happen? This is often my response as well. I know you guys have probably engaged this to some degree with dreams and visions and some of those things, especially typically phrased in third world countries. And again, I'm not saying that couldn't happen, but I definitely would say, well, that's not what God says um, is the norm at least. Um, and I am at least suspect because what you find here in Romans 10 is it's not through dreams and visions, although I would agree with you, that would be more efficient and more effective. I mean, from a human standpoint, right? I got to train missionaries. I got to teach them. Uh, they got to learn languages. They got to go. They got to preach the gospel, right? That seems like the less efficient way, but it is the way that the Lord has chosen to do it. What Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him who they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And quoting Isaiah, how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim good news of good things. You're going to have to go. You're going to have to share. You're going to have to preach. You're going to have to teach. And that is the primary way that God is going to save sinners by the teaching of the word, by the preaching of the word. And you enter in that and you understand what it is to be saved. And now we can look at, well, in light of what Christ has done, it's not what you've done, it's what Christ has done. How then should you live your life? Well, it's still the word, but the word is having now not just a salvific effect, but it's having an effect on the things you believe, the content, and the way that you live in your conduct. So back to 2 Timothy. All scripture is God-breathed. It's profitable for teaching. So it's profitable for verse 14, 15, salvation. But it's also profitable, this idea, for, as uses, not just for salvation, it's not like I got saved and I don't need to know anymore. I'm good to go. No, there's growth. That seed that's planted is meant to get watered and it's meant to grow. It's meant to grow and to be strong and to be firm and to be rooted. Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training 
in righteousness. And there's a purpose for this because you need to be equipped. Particularly, of course, especially you hope that the man of God, it's a phrase for um, probably Timothy and, and preacher, that the man of God, the prophet, as it were, may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so it's not only for your salvation, but it's for your sanctification, which is your growth spiritually. That's the distinction. It's used in equipping training, which we've argued two weeks ago, is the main role of the church. Equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. How do you equip them? You use the scriptures and you teach, you reproof, you correct, and you train in righteousness. Now, just looking at that content there, the idea of being profitable, that is, it's something you can gain. By implication, you could say, there are things that are unprofitable, right? There's, there's some things that are going to get you closer to your goal, and there are some things that are not. There's plenty of things you can do that are not going to grow you spiritually, but you can be guaranteed spending time in the Word, reading the Scriptures, understanding the Scriptures, engaging with the Scriptures will be profitable. There aren't many things that have that kind of guarantee in life. Listen to a lot of podcasts, a lot of sermons on two times speed. Sometimes I, I think it's effective, and then, you know, how well do you recall it? I don't know. But it's never as effective as me diving into the Word and spending time studying it. It's more profitable. This idea, though, of course, assumes there is a teacher, and you are being taught the Word. It gives us the Bible itself, the Scriptures, give us the testimony of Scripture upon which you then start to build your spiritual life. It's this idea, I think, generally of, of teaching, which we've, we've discussed a little bit, that it's profitable that you could take this word and you can communicate it and teach others that truth. And maybe specifically, what does that teaching look like as you kind of try to play out some of these different words that are used? It's this idea of teaching with a purpose. Teaching that is effective for reproof, for correction. Well, the way I think of it, at least, is this idea of reproof is definitely one thing that I think our culture needs to hear because reproof is, by its context, negative. It means to rebuke, to confront someone with a view towards convicting them of misbehavior. And so this is, the nature of the word is not just positive building up. You can't turn everything, and I, I like to, you know, sometimes you have a proposition, right? You have a statement, you make in a sermon. And you can make that usually two ways, right? You can make it positive or negative. Generally speaking, you like to make it, I understand people, positive. But there are some things that just can't be made positive. There's no way to spin it. And the word cuts in that way. I love uh, Hebrews 4.12. It talks about the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And think of that as the visual. The, the sword is going to cut. It is going to cause conviction. It's going to rip. It's going to tear. It's going to shred. If you're going to preach, if you're going to read, if you're going to study the whole counsel of God, you're going to encounter some things that are negative. But again, it has its purposes. It's not as if that's a bad thing. If you're learning to play a sport or a game or you're learning any skill 
if you're going to get good, you're going to have to someone to say, don't do it that way, right? I don't know how many people have a story. Um, I didn't do it personally, but I had people on my team who did it, learning basketball as a kid. I don't know if you guys, you've probably all seen it, but that kid gets that rebound, he gets that ball, and he's so excited. And he dribbles down the wrong side of the court, and he shoots it. And everyone's like, should we applaud? He made it, but it was for the other team. It's like, you got to go, hey, buddy, it's the wrong hoop. It's the wrong end. You're on the other end, right? You're going to have to have some corrective nature of reproof. And the Spirit does that over and over again. It convicts us. And I understand what happens is you're going to have some people then a week in, a week out with the church that are going to go, well, that's not so kind. And it's like, well, it's the beauty of preaching verse by verse. I didn't pick it. It's not my message. There's a kind way in which I think for often all of us, it's like if the shoe fits, wear it. If it's not you, don't take it personal. If it is you, learn. And you just can't help but love the, that picture of, and James of the scripture being a mirror. And you go look and sometimes you don't realize like, oh wow, that was really embarrassing. Right? You have something between your teeth and no one told you. Well, the scriptures is that mirror and it will tell you. And oftentimes it is cutting and faithful are the wounds of a friend. And the scripture is not going to lie to you. However, I will say this. We tend to look for what we want to look for, study what we want to study. And so that is where I think not only is church as a whole, preaching from a preacher um, and the study of the word with others is so helpful because other people see those things that uh, we can't see in ourselves, right? We've seen it so often, it's just become normal. And then someone comes along and says, you know, that's an issue. And it's a good thing. And it takes maturity. But if you've ever been told, some of you have spouses have, have been in these conversations, someone loves you enough to go, that was really embarrassing, right? You know, you were being really selfish when you did that. You kind of go, uh, you're right, right? That was prideful. You're not very loving, and those words are going to lay us bare because they're truthful. And the scripture does it even more than simple truths like that, where you understand that, oh, but God has called me to that in this verse as we study it. And so at some point, this idea of cheerleading preaching is going to fail because it's not using the word Yes, it's meant to build up, but it's not meant just for that. It's also meant for this idea of reproof and for correction or this idea of exhorting. I think if you think of reproof as negative, you could say corrective is that idea of don't do this. And the corrective nature is do this. And both really relate to this broader idea of conduct. And we're going to get into this more in a few weeks with um, putting on and putting off, both you find in Ephesians and Colossians, there's that principle of put off these things and put on these things. I think reproof, correction, reproof, corrections. But it's not all negative, right? There's some things that need to be encouraged. There's some things that you can exhort or this idea of correction when you look and you talk with people. And you can kind of see in people, do they need reproof? Or do they need exhortation, correction? Um, maybe you kind of decide and try to 
ask the Lord for discernment on that. But sometimes people do just need to be encouraged. I think 2 Timothy is a great example of how masterful it is, right? He weaves in encouragement. He weaves in reproof. He, he weaves in, hey, don't be timid. We don't have a spirit of timidity, but then encourages him. Hey, I know exactly who you are and the gifting that you have, fan that into flame. And I think that's the way our relationships should be as well. And there are times where you need to encourage people, even in their sin, that, hey, if you are in Christ, your sin has been forgiven, that Christ has defeated death. He rose from the grave. And if you're in Christ, you will raise, you will be raised as, as well. We need to look for the ways that we can use the word effectively and profitably with each, with each other. But not only that is this whole idea of conduct, um, the training in righteousness. Well, it's a broad term. It's a familiar term in the New Testament. Training, equipping, we've seen it over and over again. It's that you have certain things that you need that you don't have, certain skills certain knowledge, and the church and the scripture is there to help equip you with a purpose. Why? So that you would know how to live right before the Lord. So that, just like the man of God, you may be equipped, and not just for one scenario over another, but it's comprehensive. It's all-encompassing. It's every good work. It's training in every single area of the way you view the world, whether it's discipleship or parenting. It's this idea, I think, of even where within discipleship, this idea of apprenticeship that I have a good friend who was a journeyman electrician, and I look at my outlets. I'll change one, but I kind of stand back. I don't know how you guys, I mean, I'm not afraid. I, you know, 110 is not going to do too much damage, but right, but I'm pretty sure the power's off. Even when I turn the power off and I know the power's off and I tested the power's off, I still am a little ginger with replacing an outlet. I really don't mess with my breaker box. Well, how did my friend get to where he said, yeah, I can replace the breaker box? What confidence comes from that, right? It's that he knows he's been trained over years so that he has absolute confidence. Yeah, well, I know I did this, this, and this, and I know it's safe, and I'm, of course, untrained, and therefore I'm going, maybe. Maybe it's safe. You can tell someone who is fully equipped and fully trained and someone who is not. The same for us as believers. You can start to tell who is fully equipped, and maybe fully is a little too, uh, are we ever fully equipped? But those who have matured and are more equipped than others in the word, I think they're, more equipped for every good work, every kind of situation. And they start to know what things to say, what tools to bring out, what passages to go to. So I just would remind you, as you look at life and you look at problems and you look at giving counsel and you look at shepherding your own soul and giving spiritual advice, make sure you do not bring a knife to a gunfight. Don't give your best guess. Don't lean simply on all of your experience, but think, what does the word have to say? Because your advice and, say, the world's advice, your personal reflections, they're woefully insufficient for salvation and for your sanctification. Turn to Psalm 119, and let's close with that. Psalm 119. 
two great psalms on the word of God, 19 and 119. 119 is, we're not going to read it all, don't worry. But just uh, verse 97. And I love this picture. Because the wisdom here is not just by age, but generally speaking, right? The older person, uh, the more mature person, the more experienced person has wisdom. But I love how verse 100, I perceive more than the aged. There's wisdom that comes from Scripture that is even greater than gained by experience. But let me just read verse 97 through 104. It says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are mine forever. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I perceive more than the age, because I have observed your precepts. I have strained my feet from every evil way, that I may keep your word. I have not turned aside from your judgments, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet is your word to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. From your precepts I get perception, and therefore I hate every false way. Father, in heaven we desire to know truth, to know more about you and more about the way you have called your people to live. Lord, we ask that your spirit would convict our hearts this morning of those areas in which, Lord, we live inconsistent. Lord, we strive to be those who confess the inspiration, the inerrancy, the infallibility of Scripture with our mouths, with our doctrinal statements, what we desire to be those who consistently then treat it as such in our day-to-day lives, that we would read it, that we would know it, that we would study it, and not be inconsistent by professing It is the most important thing for our spiritual growth, but yet not open it, except for on the Lord's day. Encourage us this morning of these truths and the salvation that the scripture has revealed to us that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Encourage us that he has bore our sins, even the ones that we have yet to commit. And may that encourage us in a way that it strives and encourages us to strive to continue to excel to grow and to continue to mature in our walk with you let this be a time where where we are reminded of the realities of scripture the truth of it it's very very nature and know that if we desire to see ministry if we desire to see you work in people's lives, that it is going to be through your truth, your message, through your word. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen.